Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I'm here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. And, you know, being in the middle of the week, Mm -hmm. there's a ton of stuff in the news. There's lots to talk about. We're going to start with uh, this announcement from the White House of a $3 billion aid package for Mm -hmm. Ukraine. I'll tell you the honest to God's truth. There have been so many of these announcements about aid packages, a billion, two billion, three billion, eight hundred million, five hundred million. Mm-hmm. I can't keep it all. I feel like straight. I saw uh, I feel like I saw the number about 10 million uh, in a headline earlier this week. So I think the for the official count of like military aid since the war began might be something like 13 billion dollars. That's a lot. That's of my money. guess. I'm not I might be missing something. That's it's a lot, a of, lot money. of money. Yeah, yeah, it is. We're going to talk also about uh, a U.S. airstrike that took place in Syria. Now, this is an interesting one mm. because it was directed at um, unmanned bunkers. These are bunkers uh, that apparently are being run by the Iran Revolutionary Guard Corps. Mm-hmm. That leads me to believe then that they're, at the end of the day, they're Hezbollah bunkers. and. Um, and the White House announced that this was in retaliation for an attack on U.S. troops on August the 15th. Usually when we retaliate, mm-hmm. uh, we retaliate by a factor of 10. Yeah. Right. And we just kill as many people as we can or blow up as much stuff as we can. Um, we didn't do that in this case. It's a shame that we bombed Syria. We have no legal right to do such a thing. Mm-hmm. But uh But it could have been worse. And I think we did it this way on purpose because things actually seem to be going relatively well on the JCPOA negotiations. Mm. It looks like we're right at the end of the process Mm -hmm. where something's actually going to happen that's positive. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we still have to bomb people. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Can't stop. No, you can't can't stop stop that just because, you know, you might come to an agreement. It also is it is is so frustrating (laughs) watching this process unfold with everyone go. Here's our final offer here. okay, here's our final offer. Okay, Uh we're we're okay with the language as it stands. And then I don't know what you're doing. You're just sort of shuffling your feet. You're deciding if if you never wanted to reenter an agreement in the first place. Are you trying to come up with a a justification for that decision now? Like what what is happening? It'd be nice to see. It'd be nice to see a new agreement, right? I was and very glad to see the, 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 you know, best thing that Obama did oh, yeah. when he was president. Without a doubt. That uh, and opening relations with Cuba. Mm-hmm. Listen, I hate Barack Obama. I really do. I think in many ways he was a he was a, a terrible disappointment. He was no progressive. But these were real breakthroughs. But these were real breakthroughs. Yeah. These were really positive, like maybe even historic in the sense of, of modern diplomacy mm-hmm. uh, uh, steps forward. And then Donald Trump wiped them out, and Joe Biden's done almost nothing to re-implement them. Yeah. So this is kind of a big deal. We're also going to talk about the fact, and, uh, you know, frankly, I would have missed it. I, I wouldn't have thought about it. Uh, but our general manager, Mindia Gavashelli, pointed out this morning that there was this big White House announcement uh, today on student debt relief, mm-hmm. right? Which is great. Mm-hmm. $10 billion in student debt relief. Mm-hmm. Lots and lots of people are struggling under the weight of student debt. Mm-hmm. It's not a whole ton of relief. No, it's, it's not. $10,000 if you make under $125,000. Yeah. 
okay, but what if you just finished medical school and you're making 150000 but you owe a million? Yeah. This isn't going to help you in any way. No. And it's still less than what we've given to the Ukrainians. And you're also, yes. And also, these, you know, for, for people who owe that amount of money, right, or people who have done special medical school degrees, law degrees, or whatever, they're never going to pay those loans off, right? No way. You will just pay a certain amount of money for a certain number of years, and then it will be forgiven. You're just mm-hmm. paying interest. You're just, yes, it's just paying interest. interest for 20 years. That's right. It's, uh, it's just such an upside-down system. Yeah, and it's a system that's unique to the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we don't, we don't, other countries don't gouge people that are supposed to be the future of the, of the country. Yeah, yeah. Everything's you know? not a money-making operation. You know, I, lots I, of things are, lots but things not are, everything yes. is, and not to this degree. Yeah, I, I gave a I gave a speech a couple of months ago at this uh, uh, Palestinian seminar, right? Pro pro Palestinian policy seminar, and one of the things that I learned there from another one of the speakers was that there is a working medical school in Gaza. Mm-hmm. And they're desperate to train doctors for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it only costs $1,500 a semester to send somebody to medical school in Gaza. Yeah. Stunning. Yeah. It's incredible. If it's not, if, again, you're not just seen as a, uh, you know, like, exactly, like a bag of blood to be sucked from. Exactly right. Uh, We've got a lot of other things to talk about, too. Uh, We're going to talk about uh, the possibility of recession. We're going to talk about the flow of migrants uh, from North Africa across the Mediterranean to Europe. You know, we we spend so much time talking about uh, migrants who who enter Europe from Turkey, coming from South Asia Mm -hmm. or the Middle East uh, and are trying to make their way to Germany. It's at least as much of a problem. With migrants trying to cross the Mediterranean, mostly from Libya, mm-hmm. because it's such a treacherous crossing. And I don't think there's any clear understanding of how many people die. No. You know, they just, lots and lots of people do. Gone. Lots of people are rescued. Mm-hmm. Uh, the report we're going to talk about, a, a woman spent three weeks aboard a search and rescue vessel that rescued hundreds of people just in that three weeks from, from ships that were sinking. Mm-hmm. So who knows how many people just disappear? And, you know, one of the shames of the whole situation, too, you see this a lot in Italy, you see it more frequently now in Greece, is that the governments will actively try to turn people back. Oh, yeah. Rather than rescue them. Yeah. Which they're supposed to do, you know, by international Mm -hmm. law. They they try to send them back. Yeah. And then frequently uh, they don't make it back. These these ships are leaky. They're rickety. Uh, not ships. They're they're rafts in mm-hmm, many cases, mm-hmm. and and old boats, and and they're grossly overcrowded, mm-hmm. and people just don't make it. Yeah, it's as simple as that. Mm-hmm. We're also going to talk about the uh, the verdict in the in the. I'm using air quotes here. The kidnapping case. The Gretchen Whitner, Whitmer of, kidnapping. You exactly. know, I was just talking about this yesterday because I talked about the the black eye that was the acquittal. Of two of these alleged, uh, two of the four alleged ringleaders in this plot, and the mistrial of the other two, uh, but on their do-over, right. the government was able to get a conviction for the two guys that they have said in federal court were yes. the ringleaders of this plot. Uh, they were convicted of kidnapping, conspiracy, and conspiracy to use a weapon of mass destruction. Uh, another one possessing an unregistered destructive uh, device. So. Mm-hmm. 
Second try, they got it. There's eight more people in state court who are facing sort of uh, charges related to conspiracy, but it's sort of like carrying a weapon and committing a felony, that kind of thing. Um, But it seems like two things happened in this go around, which is that prosecutors spent a lot more time talking about what the men were doing and saying before they were approached by the FBI, uh, which includes this is a quote from The New York Times musing online about hanging a governor. Mm-hmm. And making other statements uh, in support of political violence in a general in a general sense. Um, and then they also focused on, you know, alleged like preparation that the guys made for for this kidnapping, like practicing, breaking and entering and stuff. Right. Um, and, you know, again, these I don't like the sounds of any of these guys. Right. But musing online about hanging a governor. Come on. Uh, uh, OK. And, and they face life without parole because yeah. of this. It is also noted. I, I thought this was very funny. The Detroit Free Press tells us uh, unironically that the decision is getting praise from law enforcement. Uh, yeah. Unsurprising. You know, so, and it, there's a lesson here, too, that the entrapment defense doesn't work. Well, it worked for two of them. Well, it worked for two of them. And also this is I mean, the, the other thing is, I mean, maybe that will prove to be the case, John, because it's it it is very difficult, as we know. But uh, this is probably go, just going straight to appeal. And some of the experts that the Detroit Free Press, who was just making a little bit of fun of, but they did quite a long write up of the story mm-hmm. and pointed out that, um, you know, one of the major issues with this trial was defendants saying the judge was hostile to them, cutting them off. The judge set time limits for only defense attorneys when oh it came gosh. to cross examination. Uh, they defense attorneys were only allowed as much time as prosecutors had to examine witnesses. Wow. So you're kind of, you know what I mean? Like if the prosecution doesn't want you to have a lot of time to talk to some guy, you just talk wow. him for a minute or so. Yeah. It's got to be appealable. It's got to be. That's what their experts are saying. Like this really, this really uh, was a setup or, wow. you know, th- this wasn't a fair trial. Uh, there was also a bit, a, a bunch of controversy over one juror. I don't know if you remember this. And no. one juror allegedly told coworkers uh, that his or her mind was made up already about the case and they were excited to be part of the jury. And there was some controversy over how this was handled. And the defense says that they were sort of they were kept in the dark uh, in terms of how the judge uh, dealt with that revelation and then decided that the juror was OK to continue on the jury. Oh, um, my goodness. So. You know, uh, this is not really different from what happened in the first trial. BuzzFeed reported on it a bunch saying Mm -hmm. um, in the first trial, prosecutors went to great lengths to exclude evidence and witnesses that might undermine their arguments. Um, And uh, over and over the course of the trial, the prosecution objected to any attempts by defendants to provide context for the sound bites that were played for the jury. You know, like you pull you isolate a sound bite that says like, you know, we're going to get that witch or Mm -hmm. something like, well, that's pretty that's a pretty (laughs) So uh, I would predict that this goes right to the appeals process and uh, and that maybe they have a chance in in appeal. I will say from my own experience in court, and I have lots and lots of experience in court, um, judges will cut you right off when an attorney asks you a yes or no question, Mm -hmm. expecting you to say yes. And you say instead, well, not in the context in which you're implying. Mm-hmm. They don't want to hear context. Yeah. It was a yes or no question. That's the American way. Yeah. No context, exactly. please. Yeah. <laughs> no context. <laughs> I, I plead no context to, <laughs> to right. the weight of history behind me. <laughs> 
Oh, boy. Yeah. So I think we'll get into that a a little bit more later. Uh, But, yeah, the prosecution did get what they want. And also, like, it's really being it's being heralded in the press as, uh, you know, this is the Times conclusion. The verdicts on Tuesday were seen as a warning against political extremism and a sign that the word of an FBI agent can still carry weight with juries. Right. Because the FBI has got a lot of mud on his face right now. Mm -hmm. um, And political extremism is a thing that we're supposed to all be uh, very afraid of. It's just yes. like, okay, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't like these, I don't like these dudes. I, I you know, and I th- suspect anyone who likes to sort of get drunk and play act at uh, breaking and entering is like probably kind of a loser and a dork. Sure. But like, I don't know, political extremism, if you don't commit a crime yes. in the, in the practice of it or whatever, yep. it's like, that's totally not, agreed. you know what I mean? Like it always, it, it feels like a lot of the reporting on this really, um, mixes or blends together uh having extreme ideas and committing crimes yes and like i think the real question is you know would did these guys independently have any plan to commit a crime would they have committed uh, would they have committed or planned to commit a crime if they hadn't encountered uh fbi agents and a bunch of informants who prodded them every step of the way to commit that crime you know what i mean like yeah uh, i don't i don't want to engage with these kinds of political extremists, but if sure. they're not doing something that's criminally wrong, you yeah. know, I don't know. To oh, that, me, there's something a little I bit f- chilling about that. Yeah. Yeah. This is how I feel about the Bundys, for example. Mm-hmm. I disagree with 99.9% of what they stand for. I think their, I think their ideas can be dangerous, mm-hmm. but so long as they're not, um, uh, you know, advocating violence, uh, then you can't, punish somebody for their ideas yeah you just can't yeah or shouldn't anyway yeah, yeah. uh the, you you found an interesting story too about uh fertility oh, oh north korea. korea yeah we're gonna talk uh this one we're not gonna have time with i'm not gonna burden our guest with this story but yeah north north korea broke its own record for the world's lowest total fertility rate last year south korea so, oh, sorry yeah. south korea of yeah. course not north korea um, South Korea, it fell between, uh, it, it fell to 0.18 wow. uh, in 2022. So that's the average number of children born to a woman during her reproductive years. Uh, it has declined for six straight years. Last year was a record. This year, a new record. Um, by comparison, the rate in the United States is 1.66. In Japan, it's 1.37. A fertility rate of 2.1 is needed for a population to remain the same size without migration. 2.1, you said? Yeah, 2.1. Oh, wow. uh, but, you know, that's without migration, right? Yeah. Which is why we need migration yeah, exactly right. in the United States. We do need people to come here. And a lot of this, you know, you're you're seeing this in lots of places. But people who this, uh, this is a New York Times story again, people who the Times spoke to about this said, just think, just think. How hard life must be to have this few people choosing to have children, you know, because it's one thing to have a lot of children because you have no way to uh, to do otherwise. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's another for for couple after couple, person after person to look around at your society and go, "Eh, I don't I don't want to take part in this biological imperative. I don't want to or I I simply cannot because I can't envision living a life that would be tolerable and raising a child in in some level of sort of comfort and stability. And I think that's, you know, I think that's the case in the United States at the moment. I think it's the case in a lot of places. You know, I remember reading an article in the nineties saying that the Russian, um, uh, rate of, uh, uh, fertility Mm -hmm. was so low that in a hundred years there would be no people in Russia. 
none. They would just die out. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, of course, that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's likely not going to happen anywhere uh, in the world, no matter how low the fertility rate is. But, you know, it's something that you have to think about. And you really do have to consider immigration yeah. uh, as, a, as, a, as a population issue. When I was living in, in Bahrain in the 1990s, uh, the royal family was Sunni Muslim. It, it remains, of course, Sunni Muslim. And uh, 75% of the population is Shia Muslim. Mm-hmm. And they were afraid the royal family was going to be or was afraid that there was going to be an uprising and they were going to be driven out. Right. They were looking at the Arab Spring and they were looking at the Iranians and they said, we have to do something. So they just began importing people, um, Sunnis. Right. So now there are people with Pakistani and Indian names who are Bahraini citizens. Mm-hmm. There are Palestinians and Syrians who had to flee their own countries because of war mm-hmm. that are Bahraini citizens. Uh, Bahraini Sunnis aren't having children. And so the answer was to bring in, you know, people from other places. Yeah. Got to have enough people to take care of your, your population as it grows old. Yeah, exactly right. Well, we've got a full show today. We have Mark Sloboda is going to give us the latest uh, uh, in Ukraine. KJ No, who is really one of the most fascinating, to me, one of the most fascinating guests that we have. I always learn so much from KJ. We're going to have a fun conversation with John Jeter about a whole bunch of domestic uh, issues. And on immigration, we're going to be speaking with Abe Paulus. We haven't had him in, in quite a while. So we're live in D.C. We're here in the studio, and we're going to be back after a short break. Stay tuned. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Today's Washington Post has a feature story about the heroism of the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian military in the defense of Kyiv. The article goes on to say that Russian troops are tired, demoralized, and in many cases simply unwilling to fight. But many of my personal friends and our contacts who are actually in Russia say that the opposite is true. The Russian military never intended to conquer the Ukrainian capital. It never tried to. And Moscow-based friends and colleagues say, say that the economy is strong. Morale in Russia is high. Russian military goals are being met. In other news, a pro-Ukrainian mercenary from New Zealand was killed in fighting there. He was on unpaid leave from the New Zealand military and was fighting somewhere in eastern Ukraine. It is unclear exactly how many foreign fighters there are in Ukraine. We're going to try to get to the bottom of that. And President Biden is set to announce yet another $3 billion in military aid to Ukraine. It would be the largest tranche since the war began in February. And notably, the Biden administration has given far more money in, uh, to Ukraine than it has, uh, that it's planning to give, I should say, as debt relief for American university students. We're joined by Mark Sloboda. We're going to talk to him about all these different issues. Mark is an international affairs and security analyst, and he's based in Moscow. Welcome back, Mark. 
John, Michelle, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on Political Misfits. Well, thank you for joining us. We have a lot of questions for you today, Mark. You know, I took a second look at this Washington Post piece just before the show started. It's a major multimedia look at how the invasion of of Ukraine has been a disaster for the Russians. Uh, But by most measures, Mark, it hasn't been a disaster. The Russians are in control of the Donbass. They still control Crimea. Uh, Certainly, there have been casualties, but from a Russian perspective, how do you think the war is going? Yeah, I I read the same Washington Post story. I think it also included bit that Americans are still winning the war in Afghanistan. (laughs) Right. Finally discovered the weapons of mass destruction uh, from Iraq. They're obviously in Russia. I mean, that. (laughs) This is Baghdad Bob level propaganda. Um, And. At some point, this is going to catch up. At some point, it is going to be impossible to deny. I suspect uh, it will come after the last of the, of these two last uh, lines of defense uh, in the Donbass that the Kiev regime erected over eight years. These, uh, you know, a kind of a matter, a modern Maginot line of right. Uh, concrete and steel fortifications mixed in in in, in a very urban agglomerated environment that, you know, favors the defender. All right. Mm -hmm. So that that is where the Kiev regime has massed the majority of their troops, um, the majority of their best troops, the majority of their gear. And it has been slowly on their own timetable, but methodically grinded through, particularly with the use of heavy artillery and rocket systems, of which the Russian military is very heavy. And we've heard from Kiev that um, they were suffering a 15 to 1 disadvantage, and this was already months ago, in terms of artillery left, uh, that they had no aircraft, uh, just a handful left, and um, that they were suffering a thousand casualties a day. Right. Uh, suddenly, I mean, I don't see that reflected in that Washington Times piece, <laughs> even when it comes from the Ukrainian side itself. Um, I just wonder, is anyone actually going to be held accountable for this journalistic malpractice, right? Um, this, uh, you know, inability to to re- to reflect the, the, the reality that is slowly becoming undeniable on the ground. It's going to catch up, uh, you know, like I said, probably at the the end when when Donbass is fully liberated and there will be a moment there will be a moment where the Kiev regime will probably be given a chance to to surrender mm-hmm. um, and Russia, uh, the Russian and allied Donbass forces will look probably not to Kiev because that would be pointless, but they will look to Washington and to Brussels and London yes. and they'll say, are we done or do we go on? Yes. And um, that that I think will be the mea culpa moment when the media can no longer deny the reality. But it is it is coming and it will be here by the end of the year, Um, uh, probably somewhat before that, but definitely by the end of the year. Um, And I mean, one of the best ways that the media is is useless. Right. Uh, The mainstream media is is worse than useless. You will come out disinformed. What you want to do is you want to follow the telegram channels on both the Russian and the Ukrainian forces side. 
Um, and it's not that you can believe everything that you read, but you will get a better sense of the conflict. And one of the best ways to get a sense of the morale and how things are going from for the Kiev regime's troops is their own continuous postings of their own units making desperate video pleas, you know, with with whatever units that whatever soldiers they have left standing up before the camera. I've seen this countless times at this point. We we don't have anything. We don't have any gear. We're just, uh, you know, we don't have any way of fighting back. All we've got is small arms um, and, and we're facing artillery that is just killing us from a distance. Mm-hmm. Um, our, our wounded aren't being evacuated. Um, we've got no reinforcements. Our officers have left. Our, our, we can't get a reply from command. Would someone help us? We can't fight like this anymore. Um, and it's again and again and again. And they are never mentioned on the Western mainstream media, even though it is Ukrainians taping these and posting them mm-hmm. themselves. There was an excellent a letter from the Ukrainian front, and this was actually from Pesky, which is a town in the, the, the southern part of the Donbass salient um, where uh, that fell to um, uh, Russian and Donbass forces um, just in the last week. Um, and I actually have this up on my uh, YouTube channel. I read out loud the whole letter because it was very poignant. It was very tragic. Hmm. And it gave the view of a Ukrainian soldier in his own words what the fighting was like. And this was published in the Ukrainian media, an online outlet as well. And in it, the this soldier, he said, I fully expect to receive a bullet in the back of the head for saying this. Because we all know our, our our government doesn't lie about what's really going on. And so when I say this, I'm going to have to be disappeared. Wow. Um, I, I recommend anyone, everyone, you can find it online. You can find it on my YouTube channel, The Real Politic with Mark Sloboda. But I, it, it gives a real sense that you just will not get. The, the Western mainstream media will not show you this letter or any of these videos and so forth, which isn't to say that everything is always hunky-dory on the Russian and Donbass side. Sure. There is always an occasional unit uh, that um, uh, you know uh, finds itself in bad straits uh, without reinforcement or something. But the disparity in the numbers of these videos and the reports that we've seen and what we're hearing from the troops on both sides themselves said – it's a very opposite picture from what the Washington Post is painting. And overall, it is the Ukrainian side that has suffered far more horrific casualties, has far lower morale, uh, far more desertions, far more uh, prisoners of war. Uh, it, it's no secret that, that the Kiev regime only has a very small number of Russian prisoners of war at this point. Well, let me ask you about that. If I can interrupt you for a second, this is something we asked one of our guests yesterday. And uh, and I wanted to ask you the same question. The the Pentagon has said that 80,000 Russian troops have been either killed or wounded, while only 9,000 Ukrainian troops have been killed or wounded. That, that sounds like an outrageous uh, comparative number to me. Do we have any idea what the real numbers are, what the truth is? Well, I mean, it, it's pretty clear. I mean, uh, 89,000 of those Russian soldiers were killed by the ghost of Kiev and the yes. martyrs of Snake Island. Right. I mean, this is just, again, ridiculous disinformation propaganda. I, I sincerely hope 
that someday the American people hold the generals responsible. But considering that no one was ever held responsible for telling the American people, uh, you know, hey, we're losing in Afghanistan for 20 years, no one was ever held responsible for that. No one was ever really held responsible for the lies about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq or or the, the lies about genocide uh, occurring in Libya. So we've got to overthrow the government and so forth. So uh, again, uh, you know, this uh, there's a 15 minute memory, unfortunately, and and it will allow for no accountability uh, coming out of the media or the Pentagon when this is over. But by mm-hmm. what I consider to be some of the best estimates, if you roughly flip those numbers in opposites and add a little bit more to each side, maybe 10 percent more yeah. to each side. If you flip them and add 10%, you have something about what the real casualty count on both sides is. Yeah. Yeah, that makes more sense to me. Can you shed some light uh, on how many foreign fighters there are in Ukraine? Uh, you know, we we don't really get numbers. We, we get these little, like, we'll get articles about, uh, you know, the handful of Americans that have gone over to fight. Two or three have been killed so far. Uh, we got the report today about this New Zealander who was killed. But we really don't have any idea about the size of this so-called international Ukraine defense force. This is something that, once again, is very rarely reported on by the Western media. The Russian Ministry of Defense keeps fairly regular. They are obviously keeping very close tally and obviously have the intelligence. Every time that uh, um, that there, there there's many fewer now than there were in the beginning of the conflict. But every time that that uh, Western uh, mercenaries come, you know, to the the, you know, collection points in West Ukraine or mm-hmm. Poland and, and, you know, obviously make clear that they're entering Russian our Ministry of Defense already knows about it and sends out warnings. Don't do it. Be smarter. You know, go home. Um, they have put out uh, fairly regularly um, updates on uh, the number of um, uh, foreign mercenaries in the country uh, with a breakdown by country where they are from. Um, uh-huh. How many have left the country? Right. Have have gotten there and, and gone home, either yep. wounded or just had enough from what they've seen yeah. um, and the number that are killed. And, and from that, you can extrapolate roughly the number that are still left in the country. And the, the last such detailed up update that I've seen that has come out from the Russian Ministry of Defense was in the middle of June. So that was already two months ago. Yeah. But by their numbers, um, some there were. A total of some 7,000 foreign mercenaries in the country, wow, and the number of of the number uh, per country, um, it's very heavily weighted towards a very few countries, with Poland, Romania, and the UK coming out on the top of that list. Especially mm-hmm. Poland, there are, there were at, at least 2,000. Uh, Polish uh, mercenaries in the country. I, how many of them were real mercenaries, and how many of them were military on leave? And right. That's another, that's, a, that's another question. Uh, but from the numbers that the Russian Ministry of Defense gives, anyway, uh, roughly two thousand have left the country. Again, this is mm-hmm. by June. Uh, roughly two thousand were killed, um, and uh, you can extrapolate the rest that there were still about three thousand in the country. Now. Uh, since then, the 
Kiev regime put out, uh, actually, uh, they don't put out numbers themselves, but they did make a remark to the press that the International Legion is suffering a recruit shortage. And this was in the middle of July, basically saying that no one else is really coming in at this point, which makes sense ah. because there have been enough media reports and enough mercenaries coming back saying, don't go over there, man. It's awful and things are terrible and they're really losing. Sure. Don't believe what they're telling you in the media. And again, don't believe me on that. Don't believe the Russian Ministry of Defense. See what the Western mercenaries who fought and got out alive are saying. Um, you can find it. It's not, again, not something that's regularly in the Western media, but it is out there. Yeah. Um, and I would say that since then, keeping a rough tally over the number of casualties that the Russian have put out since June, I would say at least another thousand, maybe fifteen hundred uh, have either been, you know, our casualties either killed or wounded since then. So I would suspect that the number of foreign mercenaries left in the country at this point still in the fight. And again, some of them weren't fighting, you know, Malcolm Nance taking a look at you. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, right. Somewhat less than 1500. Okay. Uh, yeah, I have to ask you about this piece in the New York Times today too. You know, this is the 6-month anniversary of the uh start of the of the fighting. The New York Times today said that 6 months into the war, Russia is both stunningly different and shockingly unchanged. Words that mean nothing. In, in my mind. Yes. First, what do you think that's supposed to mean? And second, Mark, you live in Moscow. Uh, what's your experience there? Are things shockingly different and stunningly, I'm sorry, stunningly different and shockingly unchanged? More the second part than the first part. <laughs> that's for sure. All right. Um, so. There, the, the Russian economy, all right, if you talk about the average person, right, I'm not talking about the person that took all of their vacations in Tuscany, right, and, and regularly gets imports of French wine or, yeah. you know, something of the sort. I'm not talking about the, the person lamenting the loss of Parmesan cheese uh, from Italy since 2014. I'm not talking about that extreme minority of Russians. But for the average Russian, um, very little effect. Um, you would be surprised how many of the Western companies that officially pulled out of the country simply rebranded themselves and are still uh, in the country uh -huh. or worked out deals where their products are still sold under a different name by someone else temporarily, but they have the option to buy back in. And I'm pretty sure they probably get a share of what's going on since. It's, it's happened with McDonald's. It's happened with Coca-Cola. It's happened with Reebok. Um, uh, Starbucks uh, sold all recently stole all of their uh, outlets to a Russian rapper, uh, Timote, who also has uh, his own uh, chain of um, pretty decent burger places in oh. Moscow, Ohio burgers. Anyway, Black Star. Um, but uh, he recently bought uh, up all of the Starbucks, changed them to Star Coffee. The 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 image itself looks practically identical, except it now has a Slavic headdress on, which from a distance you can't even tell that it's any different. And the coffee is the same. So uh -huh. um, roughly, I would say that the average Russian consumer is facing about 10 percent inflation on some items. But on other things, there is no inflation. And one of those big ones would be energy. 
whether we're talking heating, uh, electricity, uh, gasoline. Um, there's no inflation on that. Sorry, Americans, you've got the short end of the stick on that one. And the, the Europeans, of course, have it even worse with the energy prices. So overall, sorry, uh, the, the verdict I'm seeing living a, a middle class lifestyle in a working class district in Moscow yeah. is everything that I've read is that uh, Americans and Europeans overall are suffering worse inflation and the energy crisis and the economic crisis uh, that the Europeans are going to be facing this winter is is really I mean, Victor Orban said it best with these sanctions, the EU has not shot itself in the foot. It has shot itself in the lung. Oh, I have one That's last the prime minister of Hong. Yeah, the prime minister, he would he would know. Um, and I hate to agree with Viktor Orban, but I agree with Viktor Orban. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> I feel the same way. Mark, uh, the the U.S. bombed Syria again yesterday, saying that it hit bunkers used by pro-Iran groups and in retaliation for this August 15th rocket attack. I have no memory of this rocket attack. No. From what no, was it, I, a week and I, a half I ago. I follow these things pretty closely. Yeah. I mean, admittedly, I'm paying more attention to Ukraine, but I, I didn't catch that <laughs> no. one myself. So obviously the, the media didn't make a big deal out of it. No, I think not. It, help me understand the strategy here. Things seem to be going well with the JCPOA. It seems like we're very close to an agreement. The bombs were targeted on ammunition bunkers. Nobody was hurt or killed. What does this all mean, do you think? Yeah, um, I don't think it's any secret that there is different forces within the U.S. government in different institutions of power and different political parties that have very different opinions on whether the JCPOA should be renewed or not. I think that is the the only seriously divisive issue in American foreign policy where there has actually been a real split instead of the usual hegemonic bipartisan by, by, uh, unity. Um, and I think it is not impossible to believe that there are different parts of the government acting at odds with each other, uh, mm -hmm. one seeking to fulfill the JCPOA and others seeking to prevent it from being filled. And we have... From the Israeli press, we have been told that the American government has told Israel, don't worry, a renewal of the JCPOA is not imminent. Oh, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, I think that there's a lot of going through the motions on this, perhaps on both sides, mm -hmm. uh, because at this point, I do not believe that the Iranian government is uh, terribly trusting of the U.S. or believing that uh, any of this can can actually be fulfilled. But certainly there is is some duplicity, if not division, uh, on the American side of mm -hmm. this as well. And it's no secret that the two U.S.'s two biggest allies in the Middle East, Israel and Saudi Arabia, are both very much against the JCPOA yeah. being renewed. Uh, and you know, you, you might have noticed that there's a powerful Israeli lobby in Washington. I, I don't know if yeah. you've ever heard. Yeah, you, you yeah. bump into yeah, them every once in a while. Yeah. So I would not hold my breath of seeing the JCPOA renewed. The one thing that would lead an impetus to it is the U.S. is really has, once again, shot themselves in the lungs 
by um, sanctioning basically every major oil producer mm-hmm. other than Saudi Arabia, which they have also teed off. Um, the Biden administration is not on good, the best of relations uh, with the Saudi crown prince, in, in case you haven't noticed. Um, and they've sanctioned Venezuela. They've sanctioned Iran. They've sanctioned Russia. It's resulting in sky high um, oil and gas prices around the world. And and the America needs to get oil back into the market from somewhere, um, whether it's Venezuela or Iran or Russia, take your pick. But yeah. one of them has has got to. And, and Iran might be seen by some in Washington as the as the least bad of the uh, we got to remove sanctions from somebody option for them all. Yeah. Well, that was the voice of Mark Sloboda, who joined us from Moscow. Mark is an international affairs and security analyst. Should we take a break? Do no. we have time? No, no we don't I want to get time. straight into it. Okay, yeah. Also, please. I just have to say, shooting shooting yourself in the lung just keeps making me laugh. It's I don't know why. It cracks me up. Uh, no, there's a bunch of news coming out of coming out of uh, China, coming out of South Korea, coming out of Japan that I want to get into. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly how uh, the United States exerts pressure on its allies to modify their own relationships with China to suit. Yeah. U.S. ambitions. And so I know we have K.J. No on the line to talk about all of this. K.J. is a scholar, educator, and journalist who focuses on the political economy and geopolitics of the Asia-Pacific. K.J., how are you doing? Thanks for joining us. I'm doing well. Thank you so much. I want to start by asking you about this report from the Times of London a few days ago in which one of their investigative reporters found that the U.K.'s own government communications headquarters, which is an intelligence and security organization of the U.K. government that makes recommendations, uh, it found that Huawei was a safe—Huawei, of course, a Chinese technology uh, giant—was a safe and desirable partner for the U.K.'s 5G development— uh, and said that Britain was actually determined to engage with Huawei based on a recommendation by uh, Sierra and Martin, whose team had made a detailed intelligence and technology assessment, uh, saying, we're, we're totally dependent right now on Nokia and Ericsson. You're acting like just because they're not Chinese, they can't be hacked. This is really silly. Um, but the U.S. decided they didn't like who the U.K. government had determined would be their best partner for 5G. And uh, U.S. Deputy National Security Advisor Matthew Pottinger uh, shouted at the British cabinet for five hours (laughs) after he heard about this. And what do you know? The U.K. decided they couldn't work with Huawei on their 5G network. Uh, They backed out of that um, uh, concept, ended up spending reportedly a lot more money than they would have otherwise. And so I wondered if you could talk just a little bit about the role of the United States when it comes to relationships between China and the U.K. or China and Europe? Well, I think it's relationships uh, between uh, the U.S. and any of the countries that it considers, quote-unquote, allies. Uh, The U.S. essentially has a policy either with us or against us. You do what we tell you to do. uh, Otherwise, you know, there will be hell to pay. And in this situation, the British intelligence services, um, uh, the German intelligence services, you know, Huawei, uh, has been completely transparent. It's turned over all of its source code. You know, it, it had given wow. everything. It allowed itself to be body searched to show mm-hmm. that it was completely compliant. Uh, and yet, uh, and, and of course, they were delivering excellent, 
you know, products at a very, very low price. But Matt Pottinger had insisted that Huawei be stripped out of the British system, as the U.S. also has demanded of Australia and many, many other, quote-unquote, U.S. allies. Matt Pottinger is an interesting character. Remember, he was national security advisor uh, under the Trump administration, and he has uh, both a personal beef and an ideological beef with China. He was a reporter for the Wall Street Journal mm-hmm. uh, when he was tailing an Iranian delegation, and he was roughed up by Chinese security because you know he was breaching their you know security cordon. And as a re- result of that, he left journalism, joined the Marines, and then went up the ranks and became uh, an intelligence analyst, which led to his position. So I think he has a deep and profound abiding grudge against China. Uh, But uh, also, this was the policy of the uh, Trump administration and the current administration now, which is to wage hybrid war on all fronts. And it's understood that Huawei's uh, routers are not permeable to U.S. tapping because they're simply they simply don't uh, allow that because mm. they're not a U.S. corporation that is beholden to U.S. Uh, uh, you know regulation, and so the fact that Huawei had these uh, routers uh, that prevented U.S. intelligence gathering, along with the fact that the U.S. is waging hybrid war against China, in particular in the economic domains, in particular in the tech domain, in particular trying to take Huawei down as one well of China's national champions. I think these are all the important contexts that led to this very, very unfortunate and really um, unethical outcome, which means that the British don't have proper 5G, and it's going to cost them billions more to replace the system that they were already developing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And on the topic of China, there's been a lot of reporting on the heat wave and drought uh, that's underway there. And I wonder if you could give us an update on conditions there, uh, how they're affecting people in the the regions affected by that drought and heat wave. And also, you know, as Europe and the U.S. uh, head into recession, you know, the, the world tends to rely on the Chinese economy to sort of buoy global economies. Uh, but, you know, China is also not not a immune to, uh, you know, the, the storms of chance and whatever. So, you know, I, I don't know how how much longer you can continue to sort of antagonize China uh, economically and politically on one hand and yet, you know, rely on it to stabilize global economies anytime the United States decides to create a recession. Yes, exactly. This is very, very important. Uh, China serves as ballast for the global economy. It's the global workshop, and it's also the global ballast that allows the global economy to have some stability. For example, in 2008, they literally bailed out the United States after, you know, the capitalist system collapsed inside the U.S. Um, Regarding the heat wave, this is the longest heat wave uh, in uh, recorded China's recorded history mm-hmm. since 1961, at least, when they kept started keeping records. And about 240 cities have had temperatures uh, above 100 degrees Fahrenheit. That's extraordinarily hot. The Chinese are suffering. They're trying to feed clouds so that, you know, they get rain. Uh, and this is also running havoc with their hydroelectric power. Remember, China is one of the world leaders in sustainable energy generation of sustainable electricity production. 
And one of the key ways that they do this is through hydroelectric dams. And because of the lack of rainfall, this is putting a severe strain on China's capacity to generate electricity and therefore do production. And so I think, once again, unless things change rapidly, we're going to see some serious effects, not only in China, but globally. I also want to talk about uh, South Korea. The U.S. and South Korea on Monday launched their biggest military exercises in five years. There's been a lot of speculation as to what hardware will be used and to what North Korea's response will be. And I I wonder just have we seen anything yet uh, from North Korea in reaction to these exercises being resumed? Um, Not yet, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if something dramatic comes soon. Generally, what happens when these military exercises happen uh, is that they fire missiles, uh, they launch missiles, and on occasion they have uh, detonated atomic bombs. My my feeling is that they'll wait to detonate the atomic bomb to do the atomic bomb testing, and they may f- uh, fire some missiles. And certainly, you know, the rhetorical escalation is not far away. These exercises are timed to coincide with the beginning of North Korea's harvest season, and therefore it puts pressure on soldiers to stop farming, mm-hmm. to man the, you know, the barricades, and it uh, creates food insecurity in North Korea. And it also they also rehearse through uh, our plan 5015 the decapitation of North Korean leadership. So, of course, they find these uh, exercises incredibly belligerent, incredibly threatening, and potentially, you know, a a rehearsal uh, or a a ruse in order to move material in place to start uh, a war. And so they object to it extremely, and I think that we can expect strong reactions uh, coming soon. The other story that caught my eye out of South Korea uh, today is this um, uh, conclusion by South Korea's Truth and Reconciliation Commission that Seoul's military government was responsible for slavery, abuse, sexual violence, and murder committed from the 1960s into the 1980s at the state-funded Brothers Home in Busan. The report found that children and homeless people were regularly kidnapped off the street to be enslaved in this facility— uh, South Korean police were also implicated in this practice. More than 650 people died at the facility. More than 500 survivors have asked for their cases to be investigated. And, you know, I think this is relevant because this is the this is the government that we hold up in contrast to, you know, the terrible repressive government we are told uh, controls South Korea with an iron grip. Uh, and also because the United States played such an enormous role in uh, basically establishing uh, the government of South Korea in 1950 and, and propping it up ever since. And so, you know, I think the actions of that government are are relevant to us. And so I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about this conclusion by that commission and and what it should tell us about uh, about South Korea, about our relationship with South Korea and about this, you know, contrast between the, the two sides of the 38th parallel. Well, I think the first thing is it tells us is that you cannot trust the propaganda, certainly not about any U.S. client state such as South Korea. You're absolutely correct. South Korea is completely and totally a creation of uh, the U.S. It was it was built because the South Koreans left to themselves would have created an indigenously socialist state, which actually had already been created as a Korean People's Republic. The U.S. split the country in half, 
uh, imprisoned all the leaders of the Korean People's Republic in the South, and that they instituted a series of dictators, installed a series of dictators in 1948, 1962, 1980, and 1987. And this entire period coincides with a brutal, unimaginable military dictatorship where human rights had absolutely no meaning. I, you know, I say that with the strongest condition. This is the, the country and the period that I grew up under. And a large part of South Korea's miracle as this capitalist show pony was through this extraordinary, violent uh, labor, forced labor extraction. Literally, uh, Park Chang-hee, for example, ran the country as a labor concentration camp. And this uh, brother's uh, welfare uh, center is just one example. Uh, as the article you pointed out says, and there are probably about 30,000 people. Many of these were children who were as young as six years old. Mm. Uh, they were ostensibly homeless and being housed, but that's not true. They're, very often they're simply shanghaied off the streets at train stations mm. uh, because they were momentarily separated from their parents. And once inside these slave labor camps, they were worked to death. I mean, their, their day started at 5.30, uh, with prayer because it was run by a Methodist uh, minister. Mm. And then from then on, you know, the entire day was beatings and torture, beatings and torture, mm. slave labor. And at the end of the day, they would be taken back into their barracks and raped and uh, more often than not killed. So this is a kind of, you know, human atrocity, really on par with the kind of crimes against humanity uh, that we saw in the World War II concentration camps. Mm -hmm. And the fact that this is only barely just coming out right now. There were early articles in 2019, but only really being explored tells you the extent of the cover-up and the propaganda uh, around South Korea, its human rights violation, and the fact that almost everything you hear about North and South, you can reliably invert and, and have a better, get, a better chance of getting at the truth. It is. Once you start peeling that onion... It is incre it's incredible how much you don't know. And as you say, how 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 easy it is to just if you, if you want to get closer to the to the truth, just invert what you're told about those two countries. It is uh, remarkable. Um, the more you peel the onion, uh, the more you start weeping. The, the things yes. you are beyond, uh, you know, beyond description. Yeah. We only have a few minutes left, and I wanted to just get an update on what's going on in Japan as uh, the government of Fumio Kishida tries to deal with its unification church problem. I know we've talked about this before, and you've said that, you know, ties with the Moonies are sort of a, a legacy issue and not necessarily the most problematic religious group for that party. Um, but certainly it seems to be an ongoing PR problem. Uh, for Kishida and for the government there, with lots of polls saying people are actually very concerned about the church. And so I wonder if you could uh, just update us on the latest fallout from Shinzo Abe's assassination and uh, the, you know, re revelation that the uh, the man who killed him was doing so because he was upset about uh, his mother being defrauded by this church that was so uh, so intimately tied with the LDP. Yes. Well, I mean, the first thing is, uh, it was just uh, certain members of the LDP. Its relationship is certainly not as strong as a cult, mm -hmm. certainly not as strong as the Association of 
Shinto uh, spiritual leaders, which is really the key cult that is driving the LDP. But there are certain members of Fumio Kishida's, uh, um, you know, in a group that have had relations with the uh, the Moonies, uh, and this has, you know, rocked uh, the you know the Japanese political sphere. And probably a few dozen of his party members, uh, out of hundreds. Uh, in the LDP, have say that they've you know attended events or received fees or received some kind of support. So uh, Kishida's uh, support has plummeted to around thirty six percent. A large number of people disapprove of his cabinet, uh, and many people believe uh, that the relations between the LDP and the uh, the Moonies are uh, prob- problematic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but. All of this is to say is that, you know, Kishida denies that there is there are serious ties. And remember that the killing of Shinzo Abe was largely opportunistic, as far as we know. The suspect wanted to target one of the leaders of the Moonies, mm-hmm. and then uh, Shinzo Abe turned up, and so he was opportunistically killed. Mm-hmm. And I think some of this is a kind of a diversion from the actual real situation, which is that the LDP functions as the political uh, arm of uh, a revanchist imperial uh, 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 ultra-nationalist Japanese cult. Mm. And so getting getting people to focus on sort of the the previous cult that's not so powerful now as a way to redirect attention away from the, the actual power behind the throne, that's, uh, that's pretty dark. Absolutely. I mean, the thing that I will emphasize is that the Moonies are ethno-nationalist Koreans, and they believe that they are the superior uh, nation and that the Japanese, if they are to have any relationship, uh, are an inferior, uh, you know, appendage to to South Korea. And that's a belief that no Japanese politician can uh, abide by or stake any of their political political career on. No, no, absolutely. That was KJ No. He's a scholar, educator, and journalist. He focuses on the geopolitics of the Asia Pacific. He is also a member of Veterans for Peace. KJ, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. You're welcome. We're going to take a quick break here and come back to talk some more domestic politics. Maybe we'll talk a little more FBI, kidnapping, recession, migration, and uh, some shocking news about what consuming news 24 hours a day will do to your well-being. Uh, we're Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Michelle, we're both pretty—we like to think that we're pretty intelligent people. Sure. Um, and part of the uh, the reason why we think we're so intelligent is we like to read a lot about the news. We follow the news, but maybe that's well, actually having the, the opposite us- effect. Uh, well, no, it's, it, <laughs> it just makes you feel bad. You know, that's what it is. This is a study from Texas Tech University that found that Americans who obsessively follow the news are more likely to suffer from both physical and mental health problems, including 
anxiety and stress. Oh, who oh, would have thought reading about how the world's going to end all every day, right. all day long, uh, you know, just according to different methods, right, is going to make you feel bad. Um, yeah. If you are constantly checking the latest headlines, you will end up with significantly greater physical ill-being than people who tune nice. in less often. Uh, and it also leads to, a, as we know, a vicious cycle where you keep checking for updates rather than walking away. It also found, this is one in six uh, people who this survey studied had a severely problematic news addiction, which... Uh, What's that mean, severely problematic? It, they say it means... These people so often became so immersed and personally invested in news stories that current events dominated their thoughts, disrupted time with family and friends, made it difficult to focus on school or work, and contributed to restlessness and an inability to sleep. Oh, boy. Yeah, not great. News addicts were significantly more likely to experience poor physical and mental health, even after controlling for demographics, personality traits, and overall news use. So, yeah, I mean, this is from to be to be fair, this is from a national a national survey of eleven hundred American adults. So it's not a very big sample. Yeah, but it is a sort of a representative sample. Um, and they asked them questions. They asked them whether they agreed with statements like I become so absorbed in the news that I forget the world around me. <laughs> My mind is frequently occupied with thoughts about the news. I find it difficult to stop reading or watching the news. I frequently don't pay attention, blah, blah, blah. It's, uh, yeah, it is pretty fun. I mean, and it's true. And the it other thing true. that I think contributes to this is there is a lot of pressure to, uh, to feel a particular way about the news and then demonstrate how you feel. You know what I mean? Yes. So, like, there's a lot of sort of in-group, out-group formation based on how you how you feel and how you react to a particular piece of news, which really doesn't have any meaning unless yes. you are going and doing something that's trying to affect some change, that's you know, right. positive or negative, in the world. But just but it's worrying sort of yourself like, is yeah, not but gonna, it's, it's sort of like oh. I have to keep I have to keep up with this because I have to maintain my identity because my identity is entirely based around how I react to every new statement by, you know, Nancy Pelosi or Josh Hawley or whoever, you know what I mean? So yes. yeah, it becomes, it, there are, there is pressure to do, you know, we're sort of giggling about these, uh, these, uh, home news addicts, but we are sort of, uh, you know, we, we're giggling, but there's external pressure to do this, Yeah, you know? I want to come back to this. Our guest is is ready, but I want to come back to this because I think it's a, a, an important issue and you made an important point. Well, the Florida, uh, New York, and Oklahoma held primary elections yesterday, and the results have created some pretty heavy-hitting uh, matchups for the fall. In Florida, Congressman and former Governor Charlie Crist won the Democratic nomination for governor and will face the incumbent Ron DeSantis. That's going to be an uphill battle. Congresswoman Val Demings won the Democratic nomination for the Senate and will face Senator Marco Rubio. That's going to be one of the most closely watched races in the country. In a battle of the titans in New York, Congressman Jerry Nadler, who's the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, defeated Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney in a race where redistricting threw them both into the same district. In other news, a jury in Michigan we mentioned in the last hour uh, convicted two men of plotting to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer in 2020. They face life in prison, which is just crazy to me. 
The first trial ended in a mistrial after revelations that the men were egged on by the FBI, which coerced them into using a network of FBI undercover agents and informants to plan their kidnapping. And the Nicaraguan government is being accused of initiating a campaign to silence its last remaining critics, um, Catholic priests. Bishop Rolando Alvarez and eight priests were arrested earlier this week for criticizing President Daniel Ortega. Alvarez is the highest ranking Catholic clergyman to be arrested for political activity in Latin America in decades. We're going to talk about all of this with our next guest, John Jeter. John is a former Washington Post bureau chief and award-winning foreign correspondent on two continents. He's also a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist. Welcome, John. Thanks for having me, John. Sorry for the tech issues, John. Uh, let's begin. Let's begin rather with politics. There weren't many surprises yesterday, at least not in individual races. But one thing that was interesting, especially in New York, New York State specifically, was that the, in the Republican primaries, the more strident pro-Trump candidates didn't do as well. The races were close, but mainstream Republicans did better than MAGA Republicans. Uh, the New York Times said today that this is giving national Democrats hope that they won't be wiped out in the fall. But do you think we can draw conclusions like that based on races in a state where Donald Trump has never really been very popular anyway? Yeah, I don't I don't think so. Not in New York. I mean, I think the coasts are just different animals. Right. They are uh, just a stronghold for the Democratic Party, uh, even as watered down as the Democratic Party is these days. I don't think so. I, I, I think the best hope for the Democrats really is that uh, some of the Republican candidates, particularly for the Senate, are just so god-awful. Uh, you know, yeah. Herschel Walker in Georgia, for instance. Um, oh, yeah. They might keep the Senate, I think, just because the, the Republicans have overplayed their hand by, by, I think, nominating some of the most awful, and this is what I'm about to say is um, uh, a, a, a startling statement, but I think it's true. The, the, the Republicans of this year have uh, nominated some of the worst political candidates for high office, I think, in the history of, uh, of the Republic. Uh, so that might be the Democrats' best and only hope uh, to keep the Senate. I think the, the House is a foregone conclusion. Uh, but it's still sort of a, it just seems like this political season is a battle of attrition. You know, right. who can sort of uh, turn off their base, or, or maybe not their base, but maybe who can sort of uh, um, uh, turn out their voters, um, or turn off less, uh, fewer of their voters than the other party. And that seems to be, uh, that's going to be the Republicans for the most part. Although, again, I think the Democrats have a chance of keeping the Senate, which is, you know, um, kind of, Impressive, given how badly yeah. uh, the White House and um, has performed, and how uh, poorly uh, the Congress is perceived by the American people. Yeah, I, I think you're you're exactly right on each one of those counts. Uh, I'd like to get your thoughts too on Charlie Crist in uh, in Florida. Charlie Crist won the Democratic nomination for governor. On paper, he's a strong candidate. He's a congressman. He's a former governor, a Republican governor who switched parties and became a Democrat. Uh, he's also a guy who has lost several statewide races before, and he's known as somebody who doesn't really stand for anything other than for promoting Charlie Crist's career. Do you think Florida is a lost cause for the Democrats? 
I uh, I went to college in Florida, uh, ah. and uh, I I don't I don't know I, I don't know if I've ever seen a more uninspiring yeah. uh, candidate than Charlie Chris, and I I can't imagine him be- beating DeSantis. In this, yeah. I, I haven't looked at the polls at all, but I just, I almost wonder, you know, like, um, what are the Democrats thinking here? I mean, because I just can't see him yeah. uh, rallying the Democratic base in Florida. I mean, it just seems like there's going to be very low turnout among the Democrats because Chris is just not. I don't think he inspires anyone. Maybe, maybe the business interest in Florida. Uh, and of course, DeSantis, uh, his most loyal constituents are rabidly supportive of him. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, I just don't, I don't see, I guess it could be close because again, the turnout might, might be low. Uh, or, or because DeSantis has both very strong uh, um, votes for and against him, or will have very strong votes for and against him. So maybe it could be relatively close, but I have a hard time seeing Charlie Chris, of all people, pulling this off in Florida. Yeah, I have to agree with you. And you know, Charlie Chris is, is Greek, and so he gets a lot of, of press uh, in the Greek media, both uh, in Greece and in the United States. And even the Greek media is just like, meh, you know? Probably a very nice guy, doesn't really inspire anybody, doesn't stand for anything. The Democrats had to nominate somebody, right? So there's Charlie Crist. Uh, I also want to ask you about this case in uh, Michigan, where the initial reports in 2020 said that a group of lunatics uh, had sought to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer. what we learned in those early reports turned out to just not be true, uh, at least not the narrative that the FBI at all wanted us to believe. Uh, the idea was supposed to be that their act would initiate a revolution. People would take to the streets. They would overthrow these anti-Trump uh, uh, Democrats, blah, blah, blah. The truth, though, was Just like we've seen in countless cases in the past, these militia members had been infiltrated by the FBI. And it turned out that it was the FBI who was egging egging them on. Uh, They argued that they were entrapped. Uh, They were reported on by undercover FBI agents and FBI informants throughout the entire process. And we've seen things like this happen in other cases in, in Oregon, in Ohio, in Washington State, in Idaho, Nevada. Their their first trial ended in mistrial, but the entrapment defense almost never works. It certainly hasn't worked in these other states that I've mentioned. Um, and these two men were convicted yesterday. They face life without parole, which is just nuts to me. What what do you think we should make of this? Is is there really a militia problem in the United States, or is this a problem that's been created by the FBI? <laughs> I think there is a militia. I think the answer to both questions is yes. The list of problem. Uh, I don't think that these men uh, are guilty uh, of conspiring to kidnap 
Gretchen Whitmer. I think that they were framed. They were set up. I think this is classic entrapment. I think that this is what this has been an FBI tactic, certainly since 9-11 when we saw this. Oh, yeah. Before Michigan, they, they framed uh, some um, uh, uh, Arab, Muslim, uh, Muslim uh, group that they said was trying to, I can't remember what kind of terrorist activity they were, they were uh, elected to have uh, planned, but they, I, I believe they were all acquitted. Uh, and they've done this numerous times. I think in New York, New York, upstate New York, they did it uh, about ten years ago. Uh, and, and and even you know, I mean, people probably a lot of people probably won't remember this, but I think it's also the same uh, narrative. They did this to Malcolm X's daughter with an FBI informant and framed her oh. to, to plotting to kill Louis Farrakhan, which was utterly ridiculous. Uh, she's a woman who had some, some issues, uh, mental issues, emotional issues. Uh, so this seems to be an FBI tactic. I, I just, I fear, and, and this is all part of a piece, I think, given, uh, you know, the, the elections that are happening, uh, this, this, I, you know, I, I'm finally going to lock down Trump up, um, but, you know, um, now, this, this whole thing about, you know, indicting him for, uh, you know, stealing state secrets, uh, that dog's not going to hunt. Uh, and I just think it's going to make a martyr out of him if yeah. he didn't do this, which is what they're doing with these, 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 these frame-ups like, they're, like they've done in Michigan. I mean, this is just not, this dog is not going to hunt. It's going to backfire. I think the Democratic Party is really uh, facing an existential threat, and they are... When you're in a hole, stop digging. <laughs> Continue to dig, right? Uh, with these frame ups, and I just don't think the American people. I, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a 57 year old black man. I have a vested interest in seeing uh, militia groups and white supremacist groups uh, undermined and uprooted. Uh, I don't think this group in, in Michigan was a real posed a real threat to the democratic order or to uh, or even really to. Um, uh, you know, democracy uh, in Michigan, and I, I just I don't, I, 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 you know, this this seems like a very desperate move, uh, or maybe twenty years of desperation by yeah. the Democratic Party in particular. Yeah, you know, I've told this uh, this story on the show before, but the same thing happened in Ohio, where these these three idiots uh, were sitting in a bar, they were drunk, and uh, and uh, a guy came up and started drinking with them and, and said, Hey, you know what we should do? What would be fun? We should blow up the route 82 bridge. And I have access to, uh, to explosives. Well, of course he's an FBI informant. He's the one that talked them into trying to blow up the route 82 bridge. And of course they, they laid these explosives out and they're inert. And when they push the plunger and there's no explosion, a half a dozen FBI agents come out of the bushes and arrest them. And these three guys got 20, 25, and 30 years in prison for conspiracy to commit terrorism and uh, conspiracy to use a weapon of mass destruction. They had no intention of blowing up the Route 82 bridge. They they were just out drinking that night. It was the FBI's idea to pull them into it. And we see this kind of thing all over the country, since 9-11 especially. Um, you know, and it doesn't just target Muslims anymore. Now it seems like it targets these these right wing or militia types. And I I have to agree with you that I think we're going to get to the point where people are going to start pushing back. We're 
Exactly right there. Let's uh, let's switch to uh, the economy. Economists are telling us that food insecurity is on the rise in the United States because relief provided by President Biden's one point nine trillion dollar stimulus package has begun to end. Right. The, the money is gone. It's been used up. Inflation is up. Rent has spiked. Gas prices are significantly higher than they were a year ago. Another round of federal aid is not going to happen. It's not even being considered. How do we keep poor people from going hungry now? How do we keep at-risk families from falling into poverty, especially as we're on the, the edge of a, another recession? I think I think this is a continuation of our last discussion. We don't. We frame up, uh, you know, yeah. terrorist dimensions. We don't help them. I think that's the problem. They they're completely out of answers. I mean, what what we what we're seeing now, uh, what the Democrats, particularly but also the Republicans, are trying to obscure is that um, the last forty years have been an experiment in a completely privatized economy. It has failed abjectly, right? By no standard. No, the only standard by which you could say that this completely privatized economy has succeeded is the wealth that has been accumulated by the top 1%. By every other measure, it has failed abjectly. It can't feed people. It can't house people. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't serve our needs. And so what needs to happen is to retake some of of, uh, that privately, uh, those privately owned resources and make them public, right? Whether it is food production, whether it is housing, whether it is um, uh, utilities, right? The rising cost of utilities. I mean, all of these things have been turned into commodities from which people can profit. And the only way to reverse this, you know, as Fred Hampton said, you don't fight, uh, you don't fight uh, capitalism with capitalism, you fight capitalism with socialism. And, you know, the labels are unimportant, but what we need, we need, uh, we need some of these resources for the public 
benefit, you know, and it is everything. It's, our educational system is horrible, right? And it's because it's been privatized for the most part. Uh, you know, this college debt that Joe Biden is talking about, you know, uh, I guess he's going to do it, relieve $10,000 for most borrowers. That's right. already the deck on the Titanic. That's not going to do it. So um, they're in serious trouble. The, the solutions aren't even being discussed in public. And the American people, I think, are rudderless and well-armed American people is a very dangerous thing. Indeed. Uh, you are well-versed in the politics of Central America, John. Help us to understand what's going on in Nicaragua. Uh, we hear from some of our colleagues there that things are great, the economy is growing, and it's all thanks to the enlightened leadership of Daniel Ortega. But then we see reports that Ortega has banned opposition political parties and has arrested Catholic priests and a, a local bishop. What should we make of all this? I, you know, I think you give me a little too much credit. I don't know. And I, I'll, I'll tell you this. One thing I learned, and I learned this actually from uh, traveling to Venezuela for the Washington Post at the height of Hugo Chavez's uh, tenure there back in 2003 and 2004, is that you can't really tell what's going on in the country uh, from the media reports. You have to actually go there and yeah. yourself and talk. Yeah, that's right. So I don't know, right? Uh, I'll say this. I know that... Um, my guess, my guess, it's just a guess, um, is that uh, the economy is probably doing a little bit better than a lot of other economies in Central America, only because so much of it is based on worker cooperatives, and that probably helps to buoy it somewhat. But there's still, I'm sure there's still, uh, the idea that they are prospering, sort of, uh, they are sort of a sea of prosperity in this, in this uh or an island of prosperity in the sea of, of decline is yeah. probably exaggerated just because it's it's still a very closed economy mm-hmm. um, and uh, reliant on their neighbors. And so I have a hard time seeing them prospering. They might sort of just be holding steady uh, better than a lot of their neighbors. And at the same time, uh, you know, I think Ortega, my guess is that Ortega is um, – because the economy is maybe a little unsteady or, or holding steady, he's trying to keep sort of his constituents in line. And that um, the Catholic Church has, has there's still very bitter feelings about the role that the Catholic Church played, particularly after the liberation theologists were kicked out and, and many of them, some of them killed even, uh, after Romero and, and Salvador. Uh, Salvador. Uh, my guess is that he's playing into that, those divisions. You know, it's very much like uh, when I was a reporter in Detroit and, and Coleman Young, who was a oh, yeah. man, but you know, he didn't always deliver for the people, right? I mean, what wasn't completely his fault. I mean, it was a, it was a tough sell uh, in Detroit in the early 90s. But, you know, when things got tough, he would talk about, you know, the, the, the white oppressor and, you know, the whites across the, the city line at 8 Mile, you know, across 8 Mile. And there was some truth to it, right? But it, was, it, it also sort of kept people in line to some extent. I'm guessing this is what Ortega is doing by, uh, I mean, and, and I don't know. I mean, I don't know if these, if these priests are actually involved in something subversive. I, I kind of doubt it, but it's possible. But my, my, my guess is that he's trying to sort of uh, rally support for, um, for his government, which probably is not producing, uh, delivering the goods the way that the people would like to see it. Um, I, I, yeah, that's my best guess. And I, I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, that's an insufficient answer, but I just know. No, not at all. 
you go there. It it bears watching. I I I'm not an expert on Latin America. I'm interested, and I'd like to know what's going on. I'd like to go there and check it out myself one of these days. Uh, but I think it it bears watching. Uh, John. There was an article that uh, that Michelle flagged for me that I otherwise would have just completely missed. Uh, we're seeing reporting now that federal cannabis arrests are up more than 25% under the Biden administration. This is the biggest jump in arrests related to marijuana in a decade. Uh, the arrests come as more and more states either legalize or decriminalize uh, the use of weed. Joe Biden has always had an old school view on weed, calling it a gateway drug. We know definitively that it's not. Uh, but he said that as recently as the 2020 campaign. What do you think the pattern of arrests means? Are we moving backward on this issue? I think when we elected, well, you, know, you, you could you could argue we've been moving backwards for at least the last twenty years, right? But you know, what's the thing? Uh, I think my Angelou, uh, my Angelou, when someone tells you who they are, believe them. Believe them. This is who Joe Biden is. There's nothing surprising about this. This is who he is. He's always been a lock em up law and order kind of guy, very much in the in the Richard Nixon role, which is what he was elected to to, to Congress, I believe, was during the Nixon years. Uh, and he's always been this person. So it's not actually if you want to be if you want me to be completely honest, I'm surprised it's only twenty five percent increase. I would really wouldn't be shocked if it was more than that under Joe, Joe Biden. He is who we thought he was. He doesn't have any solutions. The hypocrisy of, of, of Joe Biden, who, who told black voters in particular, who of course are the casualties of this drug war, particularly when it comes to marijuana arrests, uh, more than anyone, when he told black voters, you know, if you don't vote for me, you're not black. Well, you know, what does he say now, right? I mean, and and, and the hypocrisy of this, and of course, they talk about uh, Brittany Griner, the, the WNBA star who was arrested uh, and charged and convicted in Russia uh, for a, a minuscule amount of, of, of weed, uh, really, I think, just residue, really. And I think that was wrong, too. I think Putin missed a, a, a very real opportunity to to uh, to uh, show the hypocrisy mm-hmm. of the United States, but but it, it's just so blatant and egregious. This you know the uh, an increase in arrest. You know, like how is this helping at all? And how is this in any way, shape, or form what Joe Biden promised yeah. uh, the electorate he ran for president? Absolutely true. One final question for you. Um, Edmund Phelps, who is a Nobel Prize-winning economist, said in an interview yesterday on CNBC that uh, the U.S. needs a 1950s-style economic growth period to get back on track, that these temporary spending boosts and Treasury cutting checks to people and tax cuts, they just aren't working. Would you agree with that? How How do you think we get back to real growth and prosperity? I, I agree with that 100%, 110%. I, I think, I mean, what he's saying is, is obviously much easier said than done. The 1950s sure. prosperity was a, was a product of 20 years of, of, of organizing by the working class uh, throughout the, in, in the, in the labor unions, but also the social organizing. Uh, it, was, it was also part of the blacks and communists working together, and it was with this clear 
ideology of uh, bolstering buying power, which of course is what creates demand and what, what drives the economy. We need buying power. People need buying power, not borrowing power, buying power. They need to save, they need to own homes. And so what I think needs to happen is to be a real reimagining of the economy that works for the people as opposed to people who work for the economy. Uh, what that would look like, I think the people have to decide, but I would suggest, right, uh, and I would suggest that we start with the poorest people, um, many of whom are black, mm-hmm. start to think about how do we redistribute wealth. Uh, I would say the first, the most obvious way is to taxes, a uh, tax on, on financial transactions, wealthy ta- transactions. A reversal of what we've seen with these tax increment financing districts, which are very popular across the country, particularly in places like, like Chicago, where the, basically they freeze an amount of uh, tax revenues by a district, right, and they use that for economic development. You could do that where you actually use the richest districts in a city, let's say Chicago, say keep Chicago, so you would use the loop, right, and you would use that money to subsidize, let's say, the, the 10 poorest. Uh, districts in Chicago, right? Use that, and you build. I think this is. It's so funny. We just talked about Nicaragua. Uh, I think the key to our rebound, if it is, if it's going to happen, will be worker cooperatives, employee-owned cooperatives, public space, right? And you hear so much about the the supply line that's been broken by COVID. We can bring that supply line back, right? Through worker cooperatives, we can make everything we need in you know inner city Chicago. Uh, uh, the, the old aging industrial suburbs of Cleveland, uh-huh. all these cities which need economic development, which need to produce, right? That's the, that's the point. We need to produce, not borrow, not consume. We need to produce. So everything we need, underwear, baby formula, toothpaste, we can make that right here in this country, and that will buoy incomes, right, in particular if they're worker-owned cooperatives. Now, of course, the pushback is going to come from big business, uh, but that's just the fight we have. We have to fight. We yep. they have to be vanquished. And I, you know, I know I sound like a communist. Uh, play it as it lays, right? But but we need more public space for the people. You can't have a privately uh, an economy that's completely owned by the private sector. It yeah. just can't. It can't work. That's right. Well, thank you, John Jeter, for joining us. John is a former Washington Post bureau chief and award-winning foreign correspondent on two continents. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take one more short break and come right back. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, and uh, wanted to talk about migration again. After, I mean, mm. this is after I saw this absolutely horrifying report, terrible, uh, a little while back on the state of things in the Mediterranean. Mm. And of course, we talk a lot about uh, migration across the U.S. southern border. Um, but, you know, the, the state of migration across the Mediterranean right now seems pretty dismal. A yeah. reporter for British Daily Eye newspaper. There are all these newspapers I've never heard of, but it's, a, it's real. Uh, she spent three weeks on a search and rescue ship monitoring the central Mediterranean, which is called the deadliest migration route in the world, and came away 
absolutely horrified at what she saw and sure that the world does not really know what is taking place as people try to cross from North Africa to Europe. She reported seeing hundreds of people rescued from dangerous boats, uh, boats that were overcrowded, that were leaking fuel, mm-hmm. which is dangerous. It mm-hmm. can burn you pretty badly. Uh, you know, if it hits your skin, if it uh, um, makes contact with salt water. The migrants she saw were coming from Libya, where dozens said they had been subjected to systemic violence, starvation, and forced labor in detention centers. Uh, Many of them claim the EU is complicit in this abuse. Most people she saw rescued were hoping to stay in Italy. And then what she saw was that it took 10 requests to Italian authorities Mm -hmm. before the rescue vessel that she was reporting from, uh, the Ocean Viking, was granted a port to disembark their passengers. Uh, Some people had to spend a week on board waiting for Italy to fulfill its obligations to people seeking asylum. Uh, And so joining us to talk a little bit about this, this migration that we don't talk about very much is Abe Paulus. He's deputy director of communications and policy at the Black Alliance for Just Immigration. Abe, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be back. I wanted to ask you just generally what what you think people should know about what is happening on the Mediterranean and what happens to people who are attempting that crossing. Well, I think people should know that this is a complete response to Europe's concept and I guess, quote unquote, solution to the migration on to the migration issue. And what they have done is basically wrapped around all their solutions around security. Mm -hmm. Right. And so this really kind of like started to begin as far as the security regime and migration in Europe really started to kick off around 2015. And if you really look at since then, we've seen more migrant deaths, we've seen more drowning, a lot, a lot of missing people, right? Folks that have not been accounted for. Mm-hmm. That's one thing that I really want to throw out there. The second thing I think people should also understand is that even though the migrants are coming from Libya, right, mm-hmm. that you're really looking at a lot of sub-Saharan uh, Africans or, or nationals from sub-Saharan countries that are in Libya that have made the migration up there to cross over into Europe. Mm-hmm. And so I think those are two important things to, to lay out. And then lastly, sort of on a general kind of big picture um, situation, which will be like more important as we continue to have this discussion, is understanding that Africa, most of, of migrants in Africa is interregional, meaning that most of, of the refugees and asylees and whatever have you, it's actually other African countries taking up and absorbing these populations. And this mm-hmm. is really important, particularly for the conversation around Europe and what they should be doing, is really looking at what African countries they themselves are doing with the amount of limited resources, limited energy that they have to absorb certain populations that, you know, either integrate them or really providing humanitarian protection and being, you know, and allowing folks to be able to have a dignified life in their own countries. Mm-hmm. So I don't think Europe really has uh, a place to stand on when it sort of says, oh, well, we don't know how to do this. We don't know how to absorb folks. We don't know how to have an open border type situation. But really, they can just look to the African countries that are, you know, essentially housing 21 million folks that are migrating throughout the continent. Yeah, you know, it is true. When you look at... um who is actually, you know, who meaning what countries are actually absorbing the biggest migration flows? It's not often the wealthiest countries, right? And yet somehow, you know, uh, we don't see headlines talking about how how awful their their plights are. So I want to ask you, you know, before we 
talk about what Europe and the United States could be doing other than um, just relying on increasing security to to deal with migration. Talk about what obligations countries have to migrants that reach their borders or reach their shores. You know, you've, you've contrasted what a number of African nations are doing to fulfill those obligations. Uh, what do you see happening in in what obligations do countries have? And, uh, you know, what does it mean to say it, it took 10 requests for Italy to let this uh, boat full of rescued people actually come ashore? So that's a really, really great question. I mean, I think when we're talking about sort of what obligation do they have when it comes down to the sea is a little bit more stickier. And, and you need somebody who understands marine law mm. um, for that. But in general, as an international community, right, we all, right, and, and as society, but then also as states and nation states, have an obligation to provide shelter, to provide food, to provide a situation in which people that are fleeing certain types of conditions to be able to cross their borders in a humane manner. And this really started to come out throughout the League of Nations, which then became the United Nations, right? is because World War II, the aftermath of it, you had a lot of people, a lot of Jewish people, right, sort of in Central Europe, trying to figure out ways to be able to cross through borders. And so the international sort of asylum and refugee laws, right, were really kind of amplified throughout the end, you know, the 50s and 60s, throughout the end, which basically came up with sort of, uh, um, I guess, a blueprint, right, for the world, right, for the international community, and basically said, hey, this is how you deal with uh, migrants that are at your border. And it took the U.S., I think, up until the 1980s, uh, the Refugee Act, right, mm -hmm. for the United States government to also sort of put itself on those international standards. So by and large, with the exception of a few countries, right, you really have something that is already laid out. There is essentially like a blueprint and architect out there that basically says, hey, you know what, when you have folks that are claiming asylum who are considered to be refugees, there is sort of a code of conduct that every, uh, um, you know, that every nation state should have mm. skirting it, right? And I think that they're skirting these laws for a lot of, like, domestic xenophobic issues. Mm -hmm. uh, but then they're also skirting it, I think, with this sort of loose definition, right, of what it is uh, an asylum seeker is and what a, what a refugee actually is. And I think mm -hmm. that we need to reimagine, redefine, right, what makes a person uh, a refugee, right? Because I think climate change is one of those big, glaring sort of voids out there, and particularly in Africa, which has felt the brunt of, like, climate change, right, but hasn't really done that much to damage the earth, right? So when people, like, the deserts are moving in, there's flooding, there's all of that. We don't have a refugee regime or system that incorporates sort of the new kind of, I think, it, problems that we're having. Mm -hmm. Or rather, I feel like anytime we talk about it, we talk about it as an issue of national security, which tends to mean just hardening the borders, spying on communities, you know, uh, things that you've alluded to earlier. And I wanted to talk about, you know, um, the the 
the conditions that some of these migrants are fleeing. As you say, a lot of people who are coming up to flee through Libya are coming from sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, and I wonder if you think the United States and Europe can really consider themselves, you know, com- completely divorced from the conditions that these people are fleeing. I mean, considering, uh, you know, the the role of the industrialized world in triggering climate change. You know, I think we already have one example where, you know, Europe and the United States shouldn't be allowed to to walk away from conditions that they've created or, you know, put walls around their nations to uh, stop themselves from having to, to deal with the human hardship that they've engendered. Absolutely. Right. And I do think that one thing I do want to state is that it's only right now, like when, when things, when we're thinking about Africa, right, and Europe or whatever, only people that are essentially regulated, right? When it comes down to sort of materials, right? Like cobalt in the DRC, mm-hmm. you're really looking at Africa as a continent that is extremely, extremely rich, mm-hmm. right? But because of technical know-how and whatever have you, you have sort of local government having a hard time to sort of access their natural resources in which Europe and the U.S. has no problem accessing it, right? And so the the, the problem, right, that I think we really need to face is sort of twofold, right? Race, and we can get into that in a little bit, mm-hmm. but also just this idea of colonialism, right? And so if you look at political and economic structures, right, in Africa that are currently sort of, you know, there to rule society or, or govern the local population, a lot of those, like, political structures and economic structures were based on, on extraction, right? What I like to call a robbery. Right. And so what Europe had done for hundreds of years, right, was basically implement, right, political systems and structures that was meant to basically rob the local community. And I feel, right, that Europe has a large, large uh, part in it that they, one, never acknowledged or or essentially recognized Mm -hmm. that they're not doing anything to sort of solve the issue. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, these what they consider local political quote unquote crises, right? That are really like rooted and centered in colonialism, right? And mm-hmm. We have sort of these political sort of instabilities, whether it's the Tigray region, whether it's certain regions in, in West Africa or whatever have you. Everyone locally definitely understands that Europe has a a, a, a huge hand, right, in how things are going, and a lot of that is really sort of rooted in sort of this extraction mm-hmm. of, of resources, right? And so it's almost like saying, well, what what role does Europe have in the solution when they have the largest role in the problem that we're seeing? Mm-hmm. And talk to us about race. I mean, your, your organization is the Black Alliance for Just Immigration. Uh, do you think that there is an extra, you know, there are extra hurdles uh, placed in front of black migrants. And I, I think we can, uh, you know, I think we can see pretty clearly the difference uh, between the way Haitian migrants are sometimes treated and other uh, non-black migrants at, at U.S. borders. So do you think, you know, be, having dark skin, being African, is this, you know, does this put you at a further disadvantage? It is the problem, right? I think that to not, like, look at it as, as like, a superlative, like, extra hardship, right, mm-hmm. where an extra is a bit kind of can be misleading for certain folks because they just sort of think, oh, it's sort of this added layer that they have to go through. In fact, it is the layer. Mm. If you start to see how the refugee and the asylum uh, regime in the Europe international community came to the aid of Ukrainians, okay? and what you start to look at, and again, like we all 
um, sort of don't feel that we need to take away from Ukrainian migrants that are going through sort of this war in Europe that you see right now. But really what it is, is that's exactly what the system is supposed to do, right? That's exactly what the refugee and asylum laws, the international laws that, that are out there, when they are implemented in a way that's based on humanity, right? When they are implemented legally, you start to see exactly what should happen when a country is going through some type of political instability. There's uh, immediate open borders. There's immediate relief once they cross that border. There are sort of structures and systems to make sure that people are normalized, right? Particularly with nationality and paperwork. So we have these models that are out there, but that model does not pertain to if you are a black person sort of in Mm -hmm. the world. And so it really is sort of this um, lack of the human right for the freedom of movement. Once a black person in the world decides that they want to cross borders, decides that they want to migrate, which is like has been going on since millennia as a human being, Mm -hmm. start to see that it is definitely a different game that is sort of played, right? And when you look at, let's take North Africa, for instance, and, you know, the tragedy that happened earlier this year in Malila, where, you know, you sort of had this uprising, right, sort of on uh, on North Africa, right? And mm-hmm. 23 black bodies died, right? And you start to see that it's like, okay, well, if there was maybe even 10%, right, of the attention that was, like, paid to Europe, really paid to Africa, right? These are problems that can be solved. These are not issues that it's inevitable, right, which I think is also sort of a racist cop-out when it comes down to black issues, right? Like, well, it's always going to be that way, and it's inevitable. Like, no, not at all. That there are ways in which, as an international community, we can look at it and really start off with saying, race is the problem here, right? Mm -hmm. How do we start to look at some of the anti-blackness in some of the laws, uh, whether they are practical or technical, and really start to say, hey, you know, we, we, we have an issue here, and it's been going on for a little while. Let's see about ways to essentially mitigate, right, mm-hmm. uh, the, the factor that race plays. Mm-hmm. And let me ask you one more question just about the route or, you know, the, the conditions that migrants face, uh, you know, as, as they attempt to leave their countries and get somewhere else. You know, uh, the reporter that I was talking about earlier, she says many of the people she encountered said they were they were terribly abused in these detention centers in Libya. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know. Uh, these kinds of detention centers and places migrants uh, end up stuck and waiting for a very long time uh, during their journeys. Right. And, and I think that that is a, um, a consequence of having security uh, as, as like our migration policy being rooted in security. Mm-hmm. So if you look at Libya, and a lot of people right, that have gone to Libya have gone through undescribable um, abuses, right? Europe gave Libya $500 million to sort of figure it all out. And so it's easy to see that that $500 million that went to Libya, right, was for prisons and weapons and essentially allowing Libya, right, who is going through a political instability in its own self, same with Tunisia and Morocco, but who start to see that the, the, the migration route, right, is extremely sensitive to the approach 
that Europe has to migration, right? And so if Europe has a security type of approach to migration routes, that's only going to make it extremely difficult for migrants to go through that route, right? Mm-hmm. Spins up a black market, right? And, and we see this everywhere around the world. You even see it in, you know, close to our border in in southern Mexico. When the U.S. has a hard line, sort of, we're going to close the borders, right? What that opens it up is to a lot of criminal activity, a lot more abuses that people go through because nobody is regularizing that route. When you open up a bit more, it gives less incentive, right, for those that want to do harm to migrants, right? When you start to say, hey, we have a system and a structure in which we're going to count how many people go up. Mm-hmm. Numbers should be the same by the time they, they reach our borders. This will dissuade, right, all of the And again, these other elements of poor people also in their own communities and have no way of, you know, generating any type of income. Mm-hmm. They see a population that's already vulnerable, and they're going to be like, look, we're going to take advantage of it because no one is really looking. And in fact, the resources that we're getting for is, is, you know, resources for violence. Mm-hmm. That was Abe Paulus. He is Deputy Director of Communications and Policy at the Black Alliance for Just Immigration. Abe, uh, where should people go to find more about uh, the Black Alliance for Just Immigration? Thank you for that. I'll appreciate the plug. Um, Baji.org. Uh, you can also find us on Instagram and InstaBaji and also our uh, Twitter account. Um, what is it? Baji Tweet. Okay. You know, but- follow us. And uh, thank you so much for uh, the support, Michelle. I appreciate you. Thanks a lot, Abe. We'll talk to you again soon, I'm sure. John, there's a bunch of headlines that have come up in the last couple hours, so I want to skip this last break because I have so many things to spring upon you unless you've been browsing. I've been browsing. Uh, Did you know Boris Johnson was in Ukraine? Yeah. I mean, I didn't until an hour ago. I didn't until an hour ago. Would have been nice to know three hours ago. <laughs> Talk to Mark Slobota about it. Yeah, Boris Johnson still like still prime minister. So, but my question is why? Yet. Why? Why go to why go to Ukraine? Oh, he, he's going to be prime minister for what another couple of days. Mm-hmm. So, what does he hope to accomplish? There? I mean, who knows? Maybe he thinks he can come back. Maybe he's going to try and pull a Trump. Right? Oh, maybe he I hadn't just really wants to. Give Ukraine 2,000 more drones. So I hadn't thought of Boris that. Johnson is in Kiev. He announced a 54 million pound package of military aid. Man, remember when Remember when uh, our military aid packages were in the millions? Millions, yeah. not billions. 54 million. Uh, yeah, 2,000 drones, uh, That in some anti-tank munitions that had been requested by the Ukrainian armed forces. You, you know, the UK has been a huge supporter of Ukraine. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Boris Johnson just wanted to take a little vacation. I guess. Of all things. Yeah. Jaunt around. I was on the uh, New York Post and I mentioned to you during our last break that that uh, somebody apparently swatted Marjorie Taylor Greene last mm-hmm, night at mm-hmm. one o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Not really, really swatted. What yeah. they did is they used a computer generated voice to call the police in this little town where Marjorie Taylor Greene lives with her family. Mm-hmm. And they said that uh, there was a shooting, that multiple people were shot at this address. Mm-hmm. So they sent five police officers. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Maybe they only have five police officers work in the midnight shift in this little town. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly, everybody was asleep. They rang the doorbell. Marjorie Taylor Greene answered the door said everybody's fine everybody's asleep yeah and then the person who made the call called again and said um i swatted her because she's opposed to trans rights 
Okay. Yeah. I mean, don't do it. No, not cool. Not cool. Yeah, don't do that. And don't give Marjorie Taylor Greene an opportunity to like. Yeah, because now now she looks like a victim. A victim. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it is unpleasant to have five police officers show up at your door at Tell one a.m. Like, regardless of whether they get violent or not. Yes, so you're don't absolutely do it. right. And then, of course, now she is going to now she is going to milk this for everything she can and mm-hmm. say those those nasty trans are attacking her. And this is, yes. you know, this yes. is why they need to not exist. You know, I wanted to say, too, I went on to uh, the 538 website. Mm-hmm. Um, let me find it again. I went onto the 538 website. And one of the things that I love about this website is their use of um, computer models mm-hmm. to try to predict the outcomes of a variety of races. Mm-hmm. So in the 2022 Senate forecast, um, their most comprehensive model uh, shows Democrats with a 64% chance of holding the Senate. If you use their two other models, and I've never done this before. I just, I didn't even notice the the link. John nerding out over here. I know, right? I can't help it. Uh, the if you look at uh, at the numbers based on polls, fundraising, and past voting patterns, the Democrats have a seventy six percent chance of holding the Senate. And if you look at just polls, if the election were held today, an eighty percent chance. Now that's not even really so much newsworthy. What's newsworthy is the House. Mm-hmm. You know, we were talking to John Jeter a few minutes ago. Uh, about this. And uh, the House has, uh, it's a 78% chance of Republicans winning the House. If you use the the numbers based on polls, fundraising, and past voting patterns, it's also a 78% chance of Republicans winning the House. Mm-hmm. But if you use it just, if you look just at polls, mm-hmm. um, it drops to 65% chance of, of the Republicans winning the House. Yeah. Now we mentioned to John Jeter that these that some of these races, especially the special elections, like we saw in New York yesterday and Alaska last week with Sarah Palin, mm-hmm. you know, the Democrats are actually doing pretty well. Yeah. And then what are they going to do? What are they going to do if they hold on to power? What is their plan? Right. Then they're going to have to actually they have govern. To do some more stuff. Right. You're yeah. Have to no, actually govern. Be, that would be a very interesting outcome. That's a I two. Wanna, hey, I want to point out. One pretty good thing that appears to be part of this Biden student loan uh, oh. forgiveness okay. plan, right? Because yeah. we've been saying it's $10,000. It's not very much. Yeah, right. it's not very much, right? $10,000, great, though. Yeah. I, would, I would love it if sure. someone handed me $10,000. Yeah. Shipping $10,000 off of $60,000 debt or something is not that much. But one of the, uh, one of the things that the new rule would do uh, says it would cover the borrower's unpaid monthly interest. So unlike other existing income-driven repayment plans, no borrower's loan balance will grow as long as they make their monthly payments, even when their monthly payment is zero because their income is so low. And that is something that will actually make a difference because the interest rates on these loans are not not low. Mm -hmm. And if you have, have big enough loans... You just your balance just never never changes. Your balance can even you're increase. Just, you're just paying the vig. Yes, and you dig yourself a deeper and deeper hole. And so this seems like this seems like it would actually make make a difference yeah. uh, to to people, right? At least you are at least you are going to be able to pay off the principal of your loan mm-hmm. and not just spend twenty years of your life paying interest on that's something. right. 
So I thought that I thought that was pretty cool. That's pretty good. Um, have you watched the Paul Pelosi dash cam yeah. DUI footage <laughs> during that last interview? Yes, it is pretty funny. I'm aware that this is it's it's I'm sure like edited, and so uh, the version I saw just gives you some of the highlights. But you know, it does seem like you have a police officer, you have Paul Pelosi, continuing to uh, insist that he's fine and he can perform any of the physical tests that the officer wants him to, and the officer because he's 82 years old. Sure, right? sure. Saying, I don't want you to fall down. I don't want you to hurt yourself. Paul Pelosi said, I'm not going to fall down. And then just gripping the police car <laughs> so he doesn't fall down. And saying like, I smell alcohol. Cops saying, I smell alcohol in your breath. You seem very unsteady on your feet, you know. But, you know, we, we were laughing about Paul Pelosi, uh, con- you know, going to court right. over these charges. But I guess he pleaded guilty. He finally did. He pleaded guilty. He's going to go to jail for five days. I'm shocked by that. I mean, also, like, why why bother challenging them i guess maybe yeah. whatever maybe he got a better jail deal because he, he challenged you know i th- i just thought and i'm assuming this is a first offense but i thought for a first offense you lose your license for six months or 12 months you pay a fine you go to some classes um i'm surprised they gave him five days in jail that's that's humbling uh is it his first offense i may not it may I don't not know. be it pro- i do not know but for some reason for some reason somewhere in my head there's an idea that maybe it isn't but i that could That's be totally different. wrong it could be my brain making it up people do not take that for for a gospel just yet i love when he said i'm a i'm a high profile person yes yeah 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 like that has any relevance whatsoever oh i feel like maybe when we get to our politics segment later in the week you guys can talk about laura loomer Losing oh, her. Yeah. Election. Thank goodness. I can't stand Laura Loomer. Yeah. You know, she she's banned real quickly. She's banned from both Lyft and Uber. Yes. Yes. <laughs> God, chaining yourself to the door of Twitter was the best thing. Uh, we got to go. We're out of time here. Thanks to all our guests. Thanks to our engineers and producers. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you tomorrow. <laughs>